<laughs> and I hear the dogs. <laughs> Gracie. Quit barking. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. We're used to puppy dogs. <laughs> yeah. She's looking in the window barking at us like, hey, yeah. let us in, right? <laughs> Welcome to Scuttlebutt Podcast. I'm Rich, and today I have a very special guest, uh, a longtime uh, friend, uh, Greg Johnson of uh, Dawson Creek, BC, and you work for Coraline's uh, Sporting Goods, and you're most mostly the in the back doing the gunsmithing and that, but we'll get to that in a, in a little bit. How long have we known one another now? Oh, it's getting me probably 12 years, I bet. I'll bet you. Yeah, yeah. I know, because it was uh, one of the guys there in, in, in the shop, uh, you know, his kid was showing me his, his son shot a, a mule deer the, this year, and I remember when that little guy was born. <laughs> I know. It's it's actually kind of, it, it's a strange feeling when you're, same thing when I started at Core Lanes. There was young kids in there. You know, I was setting them up with archery and stuff for their first bows. And now they're all working jobs. They're 25 years old. You know, it's crazy. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't think I age all that much, but it's like, yep. I've, I've been always, on the payroll for 20 years now, pretty much. I've, I have always said that, you know, uh, people talk about how their kids make them old. And I, I say, it's not my kids that makes me old. It's when I run into my buddy and, and I remember when we went out and, got drunk when the little guy was born and now the kid's getting married and that makes me old <laughs> oh yeah no and when your own kids are you know they're in high school and you're just like holy where's time go it does so tell us a little bit about uh yourself and here, here's what I, where i'm going with this uh in today's world one of the biggest complaints uh that everybody has when they go into retail or a store or whatever, and the guy behind the counter knows nothing. You know, they're, they're looking for these people to be experts, and that's just not happening in today's world. Well, I'm going to prove to you that, that Greg has the bona fides, but how did you start? Well, pretty uh, pretty straightforward transition. I'd, I'd finish up in school and everything, and uh, my parents were separated since I was young. So my mom lived on the island, and my dad lived up north. So probably around grade four, I headed up north. But during the summers, I'd always work down on the island and just pick up a job. I worked on contract dive boats a lot and in the fishing industry down there and what have you. When you say the island now, a lot of these folks... Vancouver Island. Vancouver yeah. Island, okay. On Vancouver <laughs> Island and on the Gulf Islands, like a small island called Quadra Island. So I'd go down there, beautiful summers, of course. Great place to be a teenager growing up. Oh, yeah. And so I'd go down there and visit and get a good summer job. And then in the falls, I'd always work for my dad farming, right? So... Always had lots of stuff to do. And then once I graduated and everything, I, you know, kind of finished up down there. And the draw of the north was way, way heavier, right? Down on the island, I mean, starting out, I find it's a lot harder to get a foothold there, you know, as far as jobs, money, perspective, and then, you know, hunting and fishing. Uh, a lot more people and less things to pursue, so to speak. So Kind of crowded there. Yeah, on the small islands it isn't bad, but it's still yeah. uh, not so much of the target audience's actual hunting uh, type people, right? You well, know? we got friends that uh, live yeah. on the very south tip of uh, of the Vancouver Island, and we go visit them once or twice a year. I'm still astounded at the people there. Like, I mean, it's such a different lifestyle from us in the north, like uh, like you say. Yeah, it's very very different uh, lifestyle. They they, they uh, have different concerns about about things than we do, and uh, I, I think it would be a hard place to fit in. 
it is and it isn't, but there's uh you know, there's a less of a niche for, you know, our, our outlook on things or, you know, if you always feel weird talking about hunting or whatever, when you know that a couple of people in the room are, are absolutely against it, even yeah. though they're would be considered, you know, your friends or family acquaintances and things like that. So you got to always kind of play your cards a little closer to your chest, which is not the way it's supposed to be. Guys should be ha- <laughs> happy and proud with some of the moments and memories you create in the field, right? So your dad farmed <clears throat> up here? Yeah. Okay, in Dawson Creek, BC? Yeah. Okay. And so you, you worked for, for him on the farm and you went to school here? Yes. Yeah, pretty much everything since grade four on, I... I lived up here and went to school through here so yeah started out of town at parkland school which is a like a 90 kid school at best and then coming bust into town i probably had the longest bus run in all of bc i swear <laughs> <clears throat> i spent more time on the yellow submarine than anything else yeah oh yeah on the bus at 10 10 before 7 and you didn't get home till about four forty-five. wow that's yeah. a long day yep <laughs> a lot of time to get in trouble on the bus that's for sure Ah, well, I mean, but that farm life, being a kid on the farm, I mean, you, you, you learned how to be uh, independent. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Inventive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and trouble was, was not unknown. Yeah. So when did you, now you say you've been uh, on the payroll at, at Corlean's for, for 20 years. So when did you start there? In basically late November of 1999. No kidding. Yeah. So <laughs> long time ago. Rod uh, uh, Schramm was was one of the owners, and he told me a story where this is when we first first met you. Uh, you'd left the room, and he told me about how you started there, and and you were just started. I think you were like a shop boy, and and you swept up, and you and you stocked shelves and all that. But he said, "Here's the cool part." He says, "The kid lives outside of town. He hitchhikes to town every day, and he's never ever been late for work." Yeah. <laughs> And they ask him, ask me now, are you ever late for work? I'm like, all the time. And yeah. I have a truck and I, you know, <laughs> and yet I could hitchhike from 26 miles out of town and I'd be there before the shop opened every day. Yeah. And I would, I'd hit the highway at like eight o'clock, works at nine and it's a half hour drive from, you know, Yeah. and I'd never miss it ever. So <laughs> you must've had some of the same people pick you up when it came to hitchhiking? Yeah. There was a couple of. Uh, one of my friend's dads who worked at the college, if he was coming through, I'd catch him now and again because he kind of come through at about 8.30, so he'd be my last ditch ride, but he'd yeah. pick me up often. And But surprisingly, random people, like just droves of them. Yeah, that's 20 years ago. That doesn't yeah. happen today. I was almost thinking of an, cutting the bottom out of a jerry can and then I could put my lunch kit in it. Then you always <laughs> look more desperate. They always pick you up then, right? Because you need gas, right? Yeah. Exactly. I figured that would be a <laughs> slick trick. And whether winter was the best hitchhiking because everyone felt sorry for you, so it was perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Guaranteed rides. So you you started there in in uh, working as uh, uh, stocking shelves and, and that. And when, yeah. did, when did you decide to move on? It was kind of a retail part. And also um, archery was in its infancy there. They stocked a few different things. And I had bow interests and some bow experience and everything previous to that. So really, um, one of the main things was growing the archery department. So it started, you know, retail sales. And then, you know, here's a budget, buy some equipment, start building the archery center up. And 
I would say in the four years that we had archery, we probably grew it six times. Um, you know, it started with me and then it got so big. Then another guy, John, come to work and we ran that archery real good. And during the archery, you know, we'd be doing tuning of bows, all that kind of stuff. And then I part-timed back and forth with the gun shop as well, assisting there in different features and so on and so forth. And then it just got so busy in the gun world that we hired another guy to kind of do archery. And then myself and John basically almost went straight full-time gun building. So it really was quite dynamic. I mean, it, it come from all sorts of different sources. So, so meanwhile... In your personal life, your personal side, you you were hunting. You you became a, a very serious hunter. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I I kind of had the bug at fairly young age, of course. Uh, my dad hunted very little, you know, just here and there. But my grandpa Gordy, which I call my grandpa Gordy, but he's he's just uh, my dad's good friend, longtime friend. He was a big influence, and my and my grandpa as well, because he was a commercial fisherman for years, and 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 really like he'd come into southern Alberta and they'd pheasant hunt and waterfowl hunt a lot, and then just hunt on the island or wherever it kind of took him. So, the bug was there a long time ago. Like I, yeah, I just liked the outside, whether you were, you know, chicken hunting or doing anything. It was just more the travel, scenery, etc., which is more of the lure than anything. I mean, you're probably a little more bloodthirsty as a kid, you know. You always wanted to bring something home no matter what, but. <laughs> well, it, it's funny because I can remember when my brother and I were, were kids. And, I mean, back then, you know, like I'm just about 60 now. Back then, I mean, it was nothing. They, they, they'd hand you 22s and box of shells or, or they'd hand you pellet guns. I can remember pellet guns. Sylvia, I think the brand name was. And I think you got 500. There was a tin. There was 500 pellets in a tin. We each wanted to have, we could spend all day and w with that, not get in any trouble, but I mean, you're practicing, you're shooting, you're, you're becoming a very adept marksman with, with a, a very anemic gun. I don't know that it would break skin on a person if you, if you were to be shot with it. You know, they're not like the pellet guns of today, but all the same, it, you, you were developing a lot of, uh, a lot of skill, a lot of uh, stocking of game. We killed a lot of uh, squirrels and chickens and rabbits and that kind of stuff with those little pellet guns, you know, and spend a whole day doing it, you know? Oh, yeah. No, I I legitimately had the Daisy Red Rider BB gun. <laughs> and pretty much I'd get off the bus, grab my gun, and I had a dog. We called it Fatso. It was a <laughs> Sheltie Corgi Cross, so it was a short leg kind of round thing. Uh, but it was a dynamite bird dog. You know, like no formal training or anything, just dynamite a sheltie corgi cross and it was a bird dog oh yeah grouse it would flush him up and it would bark at him in a tree and they would stay there and just stare at the dog and i would <laughs> click that lever from two to a hundred times and finally that grouse would fall out of the tree i'd hit him somewhere where it would actually do some damage because if you hit him in the body bounce off him yeah and that's i i spent a lot of time hunting grouse with a bb gun and my little dog oh my god oh yeah the dog should have tried hurting them. I mean, with its with its background is, you know. Not. Pretty much. But retrieving everything. No kidding. Not a day's training. Just, we were out. Uh, my dad, we had a, a lot of sharp tail on, on our property. Uh-huh. And so we were out there and, you know, it was always more sporting. We had a single shot 410 cooey. That's all we'd hunt the sharp tail with. Yeah. Because really, you didn't want to shoot a lot of them because we had probably 60 or 80 birds on the farm. 
Yeah. So you'd only shoot five or 10 a year. That's yeah. it. So you'd go out for a little push and you'd flush them and four, 10 single shot. That's all you got yeah. because you just keep following around and you, it's an all day event, but super fun. And yeah, you'd bang them out of there and that dog bring them back to you with, it wouldn't fetch a stick, nothing, but it would pick up a grouse and bring it back to you. No kidding. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. I can remember one time, uh, well, actually it was pretty common, but uh, you'd get squirrels in the, in the granaries, right? And so you can't shoot them even with a 22 short because you'd put a hole in the granary. <laughs> so we'd take and pull a lead bullet out and we'd use a, a, a wax crayon. Now, you had, there was only one brand, of, and I don't even remember the brand today. It was a skinnier crayon than, than, than the regular ones, and you had to whittle it down a little bit so that you could shove it into the <laughs> into the barrel and get it to see. I mean, we were kids, right? So oh, yeah. You, you had no idea what, what kind of stuff Safety, you were. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Nobody just had, wax. Nobody put an eye out. But, yeah, you could actually shoot a squirrel. I mean, you're, you're shooting point for blank. Me to, yeah, you're, you're point blank in, inside a granary and that, but you could shoot a squirrel, and it would, it would kill a squirrel, and it wouldn't go <laughs> go make any damage to the granary yeah maybe you should have phoned me up with that trick because there was a <laughs> lot of holes in our granaries <laughs> a lot <laughs> so as of course as you got older then you, then you moved more into into big game hunting what was your first big game animal uh mule deer buck mule deer buck yeah yeah, yeah that was the first solo one me and my grandpa gordy you know it, same thing my dad's you know we're farming right harvest is going on or you know busy moving grain around because our season used to open up uh november 1st to 21st so it was always kind of tidy up time there you're getting everything put away for the winter so always busy and yeah every chance it'd be like four o'clock i'd be like let's go hunting quick you know sneak away get away from work and then yeah i remember tootling them down back on the bottom end of our property and yeah there was this mule deer buck head in this willow tree working it over and finally lift its head up it had about a one and a half inch fourth point and i'm like it's legal hey <laughs> so stealthily hopped out of the pretty much the diesel truck and i was <laughs> been a tractor and my grandpa gordy had a 7 by 57 uh husqvarna featherweight yep with a fixed six power leopold and i still remember i you know i drew on the deer and it walks out in front of us i mean it was 25 yards <laughs> And I just look, and all I see is hair. It's a complete hair blackout, right? So I find a leg. Oh, yeah, that's a front leg. Move up. Bang. You know, heart shot. Just worked out perfect, of course. And uh, smile to ear to ear. It's probably a 125-inch buck. But, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it was awesome, right? Because, yeah, I did my core. So I had my my official own tags and licenses right. and everything. You know, b before you had to use your dad's tags and get your junior license and everything like that. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, that was my first year with my own license and tag. And that was, yeah, pretty, well, it was super exciting. Right. Yeah. 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 Down to the butcher shop, about a million pictures, you know, it's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that first animal is, is very cool. I, I remember my first two. It wasn't a deer, it was a moose, but same idea. It was, like very small bull and all that, but it was the biggest one in the world that day, right? Oh, <laughs> you couldn't take it away. I can tell you that. Yeah. The thing about it, though, is that, that I mean, it it just ignites a fire, doesn't it? You know, it, it makes it that you you that much more determined. And what a lot of people don't understand is that it doesn't make you more determined to shoot a bigger one or sh shoot a uh, a more of a trophy or anything. It's just, it's just that connection to to the uh, 
to the animal and and for us it was it was to the meat like i mean that 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 food that that's there is just so uh so important and back then it was really important i mean i was I was just about married before I ever ate any farm-raised beef. You know, what I mean, we've <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, if you'd have looked up, uh, you know, Jack Pine Savage in in the dictionary, there'd have been a picture of me in there. You know, and me and my brother. You know? <laughs> oh yeah, no, and yeah, and my dad was more of a fan. If we shoot an early season moose in the any bull season, that was that was the best, right? Yep. You know, so that's really what you know. As I was growing up, that's what you hunted for. Because it was before you started farming and mucking around. It was in August. Because yeah. it used to open August 15th to the 31st for any bull, kind of at that time. And, uh, yeah, you'd shoot a nice young bull in the canola or, you know, in the pea field or whatever. And, I mean, you can't beat that meat. It's the best there is. And then I would be – I really like deer, right? You know, I I thought that was just the best trophy. You'd see them everywhere. And then, yeah. you know, just them bucks running around chasing does. That was the most exciting. So mule deer or whitetail? A little bit of both. Like it, or the farm I was at was mixed. Um, early on, tons of mule deer, and then with a few different winter die-offs, more and more whitetail uh, kind of moved in. Oh, so okay. then it was a fifty-fifty mix, and now our mule deer population's pretty sad comparative to what it was in the heyday, and the whitetail. They they winter better. I mean, they're just more resilient, hands down. So, do you think it's the winters that's being hard on the mule deer? That and we had a few seasons there where they were just very liberal bag limits too. During bad winter years, then three point season come in, then excessive doe harvest too, and you know the population just has never really rebounded from that. We had that kind of crazy stuff too, where <clears throat> like in the mid. 2000s like uh 2004 5 6 mm-hmm. 7 yeah no but the winter of, of 6 7 we it was terrible and then there was wasn't much in 7 but but that that 4 5 6 uh just incredible and they went crazy because there was just there was mule deer everywhere if you bought a buck tag they gave you three doe tags this is in year 2006 three doe tags they gave to you you know like so i mean it was, it was crazy, and well, there's no wonder now that, that that we have trouble with our. Yeah. No, the winter plays a huge role, and if it's a bad winter, I mean, pull back on the rains. Part Short of that the is seasons. Part 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 of that is is that mule deer are are more browsers than whitetails, and the mule deer can actually starve to death living in your bale yard. There they there there's some enzyme or something that they need in their gut to be able to get enough. Uh, nourishment out of alfalfa hay mm-hmm. in order to survive and i, I have a, a neighbor there has a big bale yard and uh that one winter um it wasn't i don't know it was a few years a few years ago now we had about 10 feet of of snow and uh he had 40 40 some uh, mule deer die right in his bale yard and that was the first that i came to understand that they couldn't yeah. survive on it where, where the whitetail can't the whitetail well, yeah. can, can survive in, in, in on alfalfa why don't why do you think they don't raise uh, mule deer for trophy harvests like in Saskatchewan and Alberta on game farms? Right. Because they need that wide array of browse. Yeah. and that's They just part, don't do good. That's part of it now where, where we're getting so much more cropping being done. You know, you're, you're, you're losing all those, those bush lines and that that yeah. we used to have. And that's hard on the mule deer. Mm-hmm. It's a different, yeah. 
if you got lots of weeds in your fields and everything, which nobody does anymore, nope. you know, there was a mixed, mixed array. But if you're not on the breaks of a river or lots of coulee land around it, absolutely. I yeah. mean, your, your transitions between fields are less and less. You know, there is no green space between fields. Nope. You know, you get the odd fence line or windbreak type scenario. You know, your, your farmyard is probably your biggest treed area in most of these spots, right? Yeah. So, I mean, you're in British Columbia here, uh, all kinds of big game to, to hunt. So you moved on from the mule deer, uh, yep. you moved in moose and elk and whitetail and oh, everything. Yeah. Grizzly bear. <laughs> yeah. The whole show. Yeah. I know it, uh, moose, elk, um, I hunted elk a bit and then once, once the mountains got a hold of me, everything else got put on hold. That was yeah. that. That was your passion. Yeah, still is your passion by far. Yeah, okay. yeah. One of the cool things uh, here in BC is that rivers are a highway, and a lot of places like in Alberta, we can you can jump in a riverboat and you can drive to the mountains. But I could also drive on a highway there and and meet the meet the boat there. But there's a lot of of interior British Columbia because there's so many mountains here and river ranges that in between river in between the mountain ranges that there's a lot of travel that is done on the rivers by riverboat. And so you get the you can't get there any other way other than those riverboats. And I know we we, we did a hunt with you uh, up in the mountains for for uh, uh mountain goat and I mean it was fascinating to get in a riverboat and we threw in I think 90 gallons gallons of fuel was it yeah there'd be 90 gallons of fuel we had in us and six and a half hours yeah. up the river and went went mountain goat hunting and and, I, and the um not only with the goats but we saw stone sheep we saw grizzly and moose and uh, elk there was so many elk back in there and in alberta we're so used to the elk are in the farmlands yeah and there they were up in the mountains that was cool yeah no and it's uh yeah no the boat I mean, you either got your legs, a boat, a horse, or a plane. And not many people have a plane. <laughs> and you still need a place to land the thing, right? Yeah. A lot of the areas that you go, um, you know, everyone's like, oh, you can jet boat into spots. And then, you know, and oh, there's 40 boats at the landing. But when you have 200 miles of river, take 40 boats and divide that up. Yeah. You're not stepping over your neighbors, right? No. And the moment you get out of your boat and start hiking, 20k off the river you got it all you yeah. know there is there's no competition you are there all by yourself take your time you want to sleep in and, and hunt late in the day go ahead you know no one's going to beat you to it right so was it the sheep that drew you there was that is that that your biggest passion in the mountains yep it kind of hooked me i went on uh say my first hunt i went with uh him from work and then uh, one of his good friends and 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 another friend dale and um we went up to a spot there my first hunt it was in 2003 and um yeah got up there did a little jet boat trip and you know hiked around and climbed this mountain and got rained out and come down and climbed another mountain crappy weather got back to camp and one day i was just stir crazy because it'd been raining and horrible weather and i'd set up a spotting scope and I was just looking in between patches of the clouds, right? Just staring at hills whenever they come into view. And set the scope up. And it's maybe eight, nine kilometers away down the river. And there was one point that kept poking up. So I was watching it. And then all of a sudden, there's two rams 
standing in the wide open and they were really light fan and colored rams so I, plain as day so i kind of beetle back to camp and i tell dale i'm like oh i just seen some rams he's like oh sure you know we'd been up a bunch of hills already seen nothing so i get back to spotting scope wait 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 some like two hours went by it seemed like but it was probably five minutes and the clouds clear and there's two caribou standing <laughs> in the same spot and I'm trying to convince him that I'm like, Dale, I'm not crazy. I said, I seen sheep and those sheep were rams. They said honey colored horns, light capes. They were not this cow calf caribou combo. I swear, right? <laughs> so after a little convincing, uh dried out some gear and we, we headed up there the next day. And uh lo and behold, during this whole operation of getting up there, which was a bunch of burned flatland and then so it was pickup sticks like i mean over and under and just nasty stuff old burns are not i mean they might hold lots of grass but you don't want to walk through them right no not after especially after winter has blown them down oh and they're all down yeah like half the time i'd be walking five feet off the ground and i'd just zigzag across the tops of the trees i just was my ski poles and yeah, but you're half squirrel. You can do that. I'm, I'm the one falling down all the time. Oh, trust me. <laughs> On the way down, there's a good story with that. But so, and not knowing the area at all. This is all virgin dirt to us. No one's ever really been there. It's kind of just pick a hill. Yeah. Just reconnaissance. And Tim and, and Eugene were up another area. Same thing, just scouting, trying to maybe locate some sheep, right? Yeah. No idea if they were there or not. And uh, so we get up there and kind of get up, finally crawl over this height of land and poke our noses over. And sure enough, there's a ram staring right at us, probably seven, 800 yards away. So we kind of just backed off and they continued feeding. It was just, they skylined us a little bit. They not concerned at all. And there was a couple of caribou running around in this little spot. There was a little lake up there. So we're kind of contemplating where we're going to camp and find a nice spot off the beaten path, you know, that won't interrupt these sheep and, uh, start unloading gear. And Dale had a dog named Barney. Well, <laughs> Barney had lost the tent, his sleeping bag, <laughs> like everything important. So I'm like, well, that's okay. No big deal. I said, I got my thermo rest. I got my sleeping bag. So I offered Dale, I'm like, take my thermo rest. And he's like, oh, no worries. No worries. I got this survival blanket. <laughs> you know, one of those about the size of a cigarette pack. Yeah. I'm like crinkly foil. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, okay, well that sounds that sounds fair. I'll just sleep on my nice sleeping bag on this mat. I mean it's August. It's not horribly cold, but it's not exactly warm and the wind and everything else. So we tuck into these little spruce mound, get all cozy. I fall asleep, no big deal. I don't know if it was probably three in the morning. There's a little fire going underneath this tree. This survival blanket is just a tattered mess. So 4.30 kind of rolls around. It starts getting light. Five, the sun starts poking up, right? And uh, so I'm all, I'm just going all right. I'm like, this is the best thing ever, right? There's rams there. And one looked good, right? Because we've seen three. So we sneak over and just take a peek over the hill. And sure enough, I mean, it's ramtopia. Way more than what, you know, that we laid eyes on earlier. And I'm like, well, let's get in there and shoot one of these things, right? And Dale's like, if we go shoot one of those things, we're spending the night. And I got <laughs> no gear, so no. And I'm like, okay, all right. So down the mountain we go. 
because we had a base camp with with a bigger tent down there. Yeah. So back to base camp we go. We look for gear. It ain't anywhere to be found. It's buried still there somewhere. <laughs> and uh, so we get back down there probably about noon, eat some oatmeal or whatever, have a little food, and then Tim and Eugene show up, and I'm like, don't even unpack your stuff. We're going hunting. So back up the mountain that same day and then uh, hike back up top there, put the rams to bed kind of thing, woke up in the morning, found them, and then chased them around that day. And that was the first time I ever missed a sheep. Oh, <laughs> first one you shot at, your first one first you missed? First one I shot at. <laughs> so drew straws, right? So Eugene drew the first shooter, Tim drew the second one, and I drew the third. And uh, the way it played out, we separated uh, the band of rams, kind of that, uh, there was two bands of rams with legal sheep in it, kind of here and here. So Tim took off further down the valley to this other smaller band of rams. And the agreement was we would just shoot first and then he would shoot after. Right. So if you hear us shoot, get to shoot, you know, get into position, you know, watch him, whatever. But we, we were probably a kilometer apart. So really we're, we're not going to interfere with his hunt. He's not going to interfere with us, but. It was just, Eugene will shoot first, and then we'll sort it out from there. Right. So we get up on these sheep. Uh, you know, I pull a nice stock with Eugene, 175 yards. He shoots his ram while it's bedded, just a beautiful fanon ram, like 38 inches, just gorgeous. Tips it over. Ram's all bust up, and they were wandering around, and they're all mixed up. So here we are looking through a spotting soap, trying to figure out where this other one is. Finally isolate it. Okay, I shoot. And I hit the rock right behind the ram. And Eugene said, hit. Like he was convinced I'd shot, like hit the ram or went through the ram because it looked really good from his right. perspective. So there's rams moving everywhere. I just put my gun down. Oh. <laughs> because the last thing I wanted to do was have two dead rams or three dead rams, right? Right. You know, that's not, if you're not sure, just stop shooting. Oh, that's a responsible thing to do. And I was, yeah, which I thought was pretty good for my age. Um, and so anyway, we let things cool down. And the funny thing about it is that there was six sheep to start with, right? One fell down. Yeah. Two rams, three rams went toward where Tim was, and two rams went the other way. If any of us were counting. Yeah, <laughs> there's five. <laughs> there's five. The ram I shot at come down and walked 90 yards above me. I took pictures of it the whole nine yards <laughs> i could have shot it for three hours straight we just hunkered down and then we were watching tim and then we picked him up and then pretty soon bam and we see this well we see the sheep react and then hear the shot hey that's cool yeah yeah and it kind of comes down the hill and it's it's hurt bad and it comes down and finally falls or whatever and so tim's dealing with his ram we go up and now we're scratching our heads. And I mean, we're looking everywhere. We find Eugene's ram and we're just scrambling around. And then I go back to look over here. Those two rams are way up in the cliffs over here. And yeah. I look over here and there's the other three. Then start doing the math. And I'm like, it's a, it's a miss. <laughs> so the first hunt, super successful. I mean, unbelievable. We didn't need three rams. We had our work cut out for us with oh, two. Oh, that's a lot of work, yeah. And uh, I left my pack. Another good point. Never leave your pack anywhere. Never. Keep it on your back. Yep. My pack's back at, like, camp. 
So I packed out those heads with two sleeping bag straps tied together, <laughs> capes on, faces <laughs> in, over my head like like a Sherpa in Nepal. Oh, my God. On horrible terrain for a very long time. I've never been so tired. <laughs> and then Tim's like, oh, yeah, we'll just cut down here. And I'm like, we should climb. We should climb. You know, to, And he's like, no, no, camp's just down around it. And we end up in the spruce death forest, right, of course. right? Oh, yeah. You're side hilling and you're constantly moving down. And it's dark, so you don't really have that. And so we end up, we end up in the canyons and the spruce, and then it's just a straight-up haul for way too long. I remember being like, Eugene, you got anything to eat? He's like, oh, I got some beef jerky. I put it in my mouth, and it was like chewing sawdust. I didn't even have enough spit to make to eat the jerky, right? I was just gassed beyond. Never been so tired. And then finally just kind of broke over a summit, and camp was like 500 yards away, and I'm just like, woo, get in there. It was so fantastic. And so... It's just a garage sale. You know, everything just hits the ground. We're exhausted, just kind of meat and capes and stuff everywhere. Wake up in the morning, start organizing stuff and putting stuff away. And Dale, that, to this day, I'm like, that dirt bag. He put a beer in my pack, a beer in Eugene's pack, and this little Mickey of scotch in Tim's. How he snuck those in there in like 10 minutes, I don't know how he managed to do it. But and so you packed them all the way up? All the way up there. <laughs> And we never discovered this till we were like leaving, right? So, so anyway, we had a celebration up there for him, and uh, yeah, it, w- it was a fantastic hunt. And from that time on, um, you know, I my basically I called my uh, my main hunting partner, like mountain hunting partner Nathan. We went hunting the next year after that, and pretty much have hunted I every year in the mountains. Yeah, I would be a sad guy if I never got to go. Yeah, so, the mountains. And it's funny because you get out there, and a lot of you got to understand. Most time we in the mountains, life's miserable. <laughs> yeah, everybody everybody talks about well, you know, what's the right gear to take, and and uh, you know the right sleeping bag and all. That. And, I, and I say, look, you, you're going at you got the wrong attitude here. You're gonna it's gonna keep you alive, but you ain't gonna be comfortable doing it. That's all no. you're looking for is just to maintain, you know, life. That yeah. that, that that that's it. And. You're out there, and after about day five or six, and you're thinking, "Oh God, maybe this is my last year in the mountains." And and you know, you get home, and it takes about three weeks for your feet to heal and your toenails to fall off and all that other stuff. And and you're thinking, "Oh God, oh God." Then about a month later, it's like, "Hmm, so where are we going to go next year?" <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, yeah. If you don't uh, like a bit of suffering. It's probably not your cup of tea. No, everybody says, you know, you, you get get out in the mountains and after a week you're in such good shape. you got to understand, the mountain is trying to kill you. I mean, it's plain every and simple. Day. Every day. You give it half a chance, it's going to kill you. It's not your friend and it's not trying to get you in shape. It's trying to kill you. So you got to be on top of your game. And there's only so long you can stay on top of that game before you got to get out of there. Oh, yeah. And I mean, it, oh, from the calorie intake to the calorie expended, Oh, you know, you you're on. You're basically on starvation rations from day one. Well, I you remember know, day I remember. three. You feel great. By day <laughs> seven, you're like, "Yep, definitely skinny." Yeah. Well, that, when we did that goat hunt, yeah, Sandy and I did a, did a goat hunt with uh, with Greg and and uh, Sandy and I both shot our goats on the same day. Well, I ended up with a complete cape 
a, a, a yeah, full a life size, a life size cape of a later up, season cape too. of oh yeah a big of a big billy uh her her um uh shoulder uh cape off of hers and the horns and and some of the meat she ended up with all the gear so she had about 75 pound pack you had a i don't know what your pack was but it was lots mine mine was had a pile of meat nothing <laughs> mine was like 150 160 plus like <laughs> you went to pick it up the next day and give it a sling and you just about went with it it was like when that day coming out of the mountains, and it was kind of the same thing because we were just putting the packs on, we were done, and and uh, I, I was, you asked me what was I doing? I said I was digging around for for my uh, headlamp. Why is that? Because we're going to need it really quick. And it was about twenty minutes later we had headlamps on. And I don't know how how many hours were we through the dark? Now it's slow moving through there. I would probably say we would have been almost two and a half hours probably of dark to yeah. come out of that valley and i was working. and plus you get lost about six times in the buck brush because you can't even see your feet no and and i i blew every ounce of electrolytes and everything out of my body that night and i was just i just kept drinking and drinking and drinking we got back to camp and we cooked up mountain house which <laughs> you know i mean it's freeze-dried but um, my god that's a meal fit for a king you're so excited to eat that once a day and i couldn't eat it I would try to take a mouthful and I'd, I'd almost be sick. And then I, I set it down and, and I'd look at it. And I still can't. That was that was uh, like Kung Pao chicken or something like that. And I still to this day can't eat it. <laughs> I sat there and, and, and drank some coffee and drank Gatorade and all that. And I finally got some electrolytes back into my body. And I was okay the next day. But that, I w I'd washed everything. I was just sweating and drinking water. Just sweating yep. and drinking water. That was, yeah, we, we got down in the bottom and took a the wrong turn somewhere and oh. ed ended up in remember that balsam and and uh sphagnum moss well this moss was about this deep and you just sink into it just a huge step every time you got this big weight on your back and i stumble and stagger over this this uh one log and there's a big hole on the other side of it and sandy doesn't see that <laughs> and i'm standing on the other side i kind of got my head down and i'm blown out a bit and she steps over and steps over the log and steps right into that hole well it's the coolest thing because I could just see this headlamp and it does this complete <laughs> rotation in the air and she ends up in this hole upside down to the bottom of it. <laughs> but it was just like when you're kids and you'd have that glowing coal on the end of the willow and you do that. Yeah. That's exactly what her headlamp looked like going going into that hole. Oh, I laughed. But yeah, and once again, it was that was an awesome trip in the mountains and but uh, we were we were pretty played out by the time we oh we got out of there. But pain sets in deep memories. Oh, yeah. You know. <laughs> you don't learn from it. You're no you don't brighter. learn from it. They say pain's easy to forget, but you, which is true because, I mean, you put yourself through it every time. Well, Carol Burnett said that the best humor is simply pain plus time. <laughs> and she was right. <laughs> true words, eh? <laughs> yeah. So while this is going on, you're working at Coraline's, and then you yep. started to get interested. What, what was the... The driving part about getting interested in guns? Well, like Rod and myself, like I say, I, you know, I did a lot of machine stuff in school and everything else. So the Back mechanics. Back when we still had shop class, right? Exactly. I mean, yeah. we were, we were building grade nine. We were building knives and cannons. Yeah. That exactly. was our shop projects. What kid didn't have a cannon built, back then? <laughs> I cast a three and a half foot aluminum sword, like from scratch. You know, you could do anything you wanted. I, made I used a to bring my bow and arrow on the bus every day to school to go target practice. Yep. I mean, maybe leave the broadheads at home, but it was 
no one batted an eye. I mean, it's nope. just, yeah, people. Um, but yeah, no, the, the gun part of things, uh, you know, growing up, we had a handful of guns around the, the, the farm, right? Most of the stuff I shot actually was, was iron sights and a military Mauser in 308. Yep. I mean, it was super for proficient, great eyes, all that kind of stuff. It's all you ever needed, right? Oh. Shot, shot moose with that thing, shot everything with it. It was I'd, fantastic. I'd shot a lot of animals long before I ever had a scope. I got a, I got a scope on a Lakefield Mark II 22. That was kind of a big deal. I bought it from one of my dad's friends, Richard. And, you know, it was kind of a birthday thing or whatever. And, uh, oh, yeah, it was high roller. I had a fixed four <laughs> power, three-quarter inch tube scope. I mean, it wow. was fantastic. <laughs> Chicken's never seen me coming after that, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, and then once I started at Core Lanes, you know, uh, picked up a few more guns, of course. I mean, it, the worst thing about working at a gun store is you end up buying a lot of guns. Yeah, you, know, you can't help yourself, right? Well, I you're mean, an addict, right in the middle of it all. Oh, <laughs> it's so sad. I mean, even when a guy gets a, you hire a new person now and comes to work, the want monster is just out of control when they're first there. You give them about five years and they calm down, right? You yeah. know, anything new comes in, you're just like, oh, I gotta have that, you know? Yeah. So yeah, your gear supply goes up in a hurry when you are working. Your paycheck's pretty grim though. <laughs> like, it's more of a charity thing. I'll trade you some of my time for more guns. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you started then, and what was your first responsibilities in the, in the gun shop? A lot of the stuff I did, uh, reassembly, disassembly. You know, I had very good intellect for that kind of thing, right? Right. So nothing really, you put anything together. You know, tear something apart once, you put it together. So a lot of refinishing. At that time, we did a lot of uh, Teflon finishing. That was a very new and, and awesome process, actually. Putting Teflon on, on metal. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that was kind of the first of the non-rust or like corrosion-proof type finishes. Right. Um, Rod and Tim had been doing that previous to when I started for, you know, three or four years, I think. But that was a major part. And then right into general repairs, you know, scope mountings, you know, a lot of the things, the core knowledge, just like any shop guy, you're okay. going to be changing air filters and changing oils before you get to pull spark plugs, right? Right, right, right. So just an ever-evolving thing, and Rod would always joke, you know, I'd do a bunch of jobs or whatever, and he's like, oh, you're ticketed for this one now, right? <laughs> so, you know, and then into more machine work, a lot of stock and letting, glass bedding, um, recoil pads, a large amount of, of just general maintenance refinishing was the core part. Um, we had another shop set up. I spent just countless hours up there sandblasting and coating and, and everything else. Just and that, That's kind of how, you know, when I was younger, that was kind of the fun money, right? You know, I'd work extra up there uh, after hours and then just work the store during the days, right? Oh, okay, okay. So that kind of funded your, your hunting trips and stuff like that. It was you know, kind of an apprenticeship too, right? Very much so. And, you know, spent lots of time with different gunsmiths around the area and, and just absorbed knowledge from whoever, whenever, right? You know, there's a lot of guys out there and a lot of these guys that I, you know, spent time with, you know, there's a couple of them, they're not even here anymore, right? So yeah. at the time there was not a lot of young blood coming into the gun industry, right? No. You know, it's not even a recognized real trade in Canada. It's getting to be a, a more a sought after courses and things like there's some online things. There's like Nate in Edmonton that does some uh, chambering and barreling courses and things like that. So there is a, 
an avenue for people to learn a bit. But I mean, if you want a lot of experience, you come work for me and I'll show you, you know, we, we work on 400, 500 guns are in queue all day, every day. Yeah. So if you want to know how to fix something, you're going to see it repeatedly and learn a big base fast. It's like the old, uh, back in medieval times in the guilds where you signed on and you became an, uh, an apprentice or slave to, to a master. And he was a master of, you know, in the guild of, of whether it was making stone cups or, or, or thatching roofs or whatever. In this yep. case, it, the guns are still that way, right? Absolutely. And I know that you worked a lot with, with, with Rod. Rod was... Very much so. Like, yeah, Rod, I mean, I, even before I started working at Corlane's, I used to pick shed antlers all the time and sell them to Rod. And, you know, so I was a Corlane's customer from when I was, you know, just a young guy, right? Yeah. You know, every year, yeah. go pick up some ammo and a few arrows and whatever it takes. Yeah. So, um, about the time I got to know you... Mm-hmm was when you guys really started to move into custom guns. Yeah. Yeah. About the time we were transit, we were just moving kind of over to our new location. Right. About the time that, uh, that, you know, we really started crossing paths on a more regular basis. And, um, yeah, that's about, that's almost 10 years ago now when we, we moved in 2000, it was kind of the summer of 2008. We spent about a year in transition there. Right. Um, and that's where we, you know, really had the capacity as far as a shop, the manpower and everything to really grow our Rocky Mountain Rifle brand. Exactly, yes. Yeah. And so now that with that brand, you've, you've, um, you've worked with different uh, action makers. Absolutely. And you, because uh, I know I have several Rocky Mountain Rifles <laughs> and uh, I have Defiance and Stiller Actions and... Uh, McMillan. I have a McMillan action. Yeah. Um, and I've had you had you and customize then, some other rifles. Yeah, uh, lots of commercial actions. Yeah. Revamped like, and restocked and rebarreled. Yeah, and, some Remington 700s, some Winchesters, some... Your Thompsons. Yeah. Of, and, you know, the sky's the limit. I mean, you need a heart of the operation, which is your action. And, and it can come from many sources to achieve the caliber, the desired weight you want the style of extractor, you know, there's a lot of ways to, to make an omelet, right? What I really like about a custom rifle today is they are so damn accurate. And I take like, uh, I just got a, a six millimeter, you, you do that six millimeter cream well, more for Yeah. Me. Okay. So I took a, I took, actually took in a donor gun. I had a um, TC icon yep. from years ago and it was in. Was it 308, 308. Or, or 30 TC? 30 TC, sorry. Yeah, yes, 30, yes. 30. So not a cartridge that I, I wanted to ho- hold on to, but I took it in and had it, had you uh, rebarrel it, rechamber it for, for the 6 cre- uh, millimeter Creedmoor. And now you have this range of bullets that's available for it and, and different um, um, ammunition and all, plus my, my loads and that. But, I mean, the worst it shoots... Is still sub one inch. You know the, that particular weight of bullet at that velocity and that is is sub one inch. I have others that you could you could cover you know three rounds with the with the end of a pencil. You know what I mean at a hundred yeah. yards. It's just that is that if it's if it's not shooting good that day it's a one inch shooter. But I mean it's capable of, you know it's capable of shooting one inch at four hundred yards. You know I mean it, the 
that is what I find is the coolest thing about them. I've had many, many rifles in my day. Uh, one time, I probably had very close to 100 centerfire rifles. I've uh, since... Since I discovered you guys and custom rifles, I had to I had to feed the addiction somehow. I sold a bunch of those rifles, yeah, and and got into the customs. But the uh, the thing about that was that we were always searching for that one inch rifle, and you know, most off the shelf rifles, if 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 you could get them to shoot one inch at a hundred yards, that was a, quite an accomplishment. You're pretty proud of that rifle, absolutely. You know, uh, if any one of my Rocky Mountain Rifles are shooting one inch. I, I, I know that I had a bad day. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and and that's what a guy's looking to achieve. I mean, you you do stack the deck with a custom rifle. You can really engineer it to what you know is going to work. Um, there's calibers out there that I don't care what they're made on, they're notoriously inaccurate, right? You know, so there's some of those things that... So you, what, what, what are you... What's one of the worst ones? Some of the older style chamberings with long free bores and things like that, which are not apt to shoot, especially the newer generation of bullets. Okay. Uh, like VLDs do not like to jump 200 thousandths before they hit the rifling. Right. They'll come, I mean, you'd be lucky to have a five inch gun. Yeah. You know, and some of the traditional to pick on them, like say a Weatherby chambering. Right. With extreme free bore. Yes. You're going to pound the velocity out of that thing. You can pour powder to it till you should never get that much in there, and they'll still suck it up. Like pressure is no issue, and velocity is insane, but you lose your accuracy. So explain to people maybe that don't uh, understand the mechanics of it. Why do they have the big freebore? What is freebore? Freebore is basically the distance that your bullet has to travel before it's engaged into the rifling okay. of the firearm. So, so it's, it's basically that dead space. It's basically jumping into the. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so it's unsupported right. through a long travel. So any, whether it's your ejector plunger pushes your, your cartridge slightly astray, because, I mean, there's tolerances. Your yep. ammunition can't be exactly the same size as your chamber because it basically won't fit or it could get stuck exactly. with any debris. So it's, it's undersized. So your ejector plunger is pushing force on one side of the cartridge, which is going to align it off. Um, your ammunition, if you're not checking it on concentricity gauge, and it's hanging out there, you could be three or four thousandths out around right there. Right. So then compound that with the big jump, et cetera, et cetera. Everything's out of a line. So why would they have the big jump? Well, back in the day, before you had turrets and everything else, I mean, if you could jam more velocity, you were a flatter shooter. So then you had less holdovers and you could shoot further. Right. And it was a velocity chase. So it was to get that velocity. So that bullet actually had to jump that, in this case, we're talking about the difference between, you know, some some loads today. We're gonna we're gonna be sitting real close to the lands. We might be ten thousandths off. Yep. So these were jumping two hundred thousandths, but that allowed that bullet to accelerate. Yeah, it evens out the pressure curve. Exactly. So you can really pour the coals to them and not get that high pressure spike. Okay. Yeah. So that that was uh, th th those those created issues in the older style of guns now yeah, you know those were engineered in the 50s and 60s when honestly a gun a good shooting gun go read an old field and stream they were excited about factory ammo shooting three inch groups yeah so when you're weather with a guarantee of an inch and a half group that was awesome yeah but now it's come full circle well and part of that i think is that we, we we're chasing the long range right it's become it's become its own sport 
I mean, shooting those great distances. I mean, I, I, I shoot to 800 yards on my own place. Yep. On, you know, I have, I have uh, a range there. And I mean, it's just, uh, to me, it's, it's a Zen kind of thing, like to, to sit down there and, and just, you know, boom. And I have eight inch gong and to, to whack an eight inch gong every time out at 800 yards. I'm really proud of that. Oh, that ability. And just to watch the bullet in flight, just yeah. slide in there, hook. And when it's windy, hook in there like a bad golf shot and actually hit because you metered the wind and you actually hit what you're aiming at. And you might be holding four feet off of that target, yet you can shoot a wicked group in the wind. Yeah. And, and, and the other thing is, is that a lot of people don't understand is that if you have a gun that shoots one inch at, at 100 yards, it's geometric but and it's just pure math. But by the time you get it out to 800 yards, that's eight inches. Okay? That's right. Now, plus... You human error. Human error gets worse and worse as distance goes out. Things like parallax and all that kind of stuff. So now, when I'm consistently hitting that eight-inch gong out there at 800 yards, I'm shooting much better than than one MOA, which is one inch at 100 yards. Yep. And you, that was just never possible before. No. Because how do you consistently hold without a reference point or a turret or some other? Yeah. How do you hold 85 inches above something? Yeah, people have no idea, right? You tell a person to hold six inches over a deer, and that number will be from zero to 18 inches. <laughs> you know, it's perception, right? Well, I went to, to the FDW um, ranch in Texas last year in May, and it was for the Zeiss uh, announcement of, uh, of the V6 line. Mm -hmm. And we shot up to 1,500 yards. We're shooting 6.5 Creedmoor, which a lot of people love to hate, but Fair it's enough. probably the, the cartridge that is probably more responsible for more accurate shooting out there. And it's simply because a lot of people buy it not understanding what they're buying. They think it's this miracle cartridge. It's not, but they can shoot it well because it doesn't kick the snot out of them. There's no big chase for velocity there. No. You know, they're just shooting a really nice, reliable, very accurate cartridge efficient and, design and and they shoot it well because they're not getting the snot kicked out of them right we shot out to 1500 yards and it was really cool because we had a wind blowing and everything else we were holding 105 inches for wind okay so big old curving golf shot 105 inches off is where we're actually aiming to hit out there at 1500 yards at at, at its peak that bullet was over 31 feet above the line of sight so it's this big old looping golf slice and you're hitting now we're not shooting animals we're just shooting gongs absolutely but you would I, not no, shoot an animal in those no. conditions ever but what but. an accomplishment what an, so the first gong you shoot at out there there's six of them yeah the first one you shoot at is three moa so three times times 15 because you're 1500 so it's 45 inches right yeah and Which let me shoot plywood you, know, I, I, you think you know People think shooting something like 45 inches, oh, yeah. I'll tell you what, you feel pretty strutty when you hit that. And then they get smaller. And I, I, I got hit one through five. I got down to the, the uh, uh, seven and a half inch, so it was half Ooh. MOA. I missed it. And I just didn't have enough wind. I, I, hadn't, I, I caught a gust or whatever on the way, and I didn't have enough wind. But you feel pretty, pretty proud about hitting that stuff out there, let me tell you. 1,500 yards, you yeah. know you would. It's so cool. It's, but that's the kind of accuracy that we're capable of today, and, and it's got to do with the quality components that you put together, and with especially with stock te technology, too. Yeah. Soaking it up, tracking properly, 
you know, just even the adjustability to get your head in the right spot so your parallax is, is not playing games with you and everything else. Um, and again, I think the biggest thing is shoot the smallest caliber you think you need for the job because you're going to shoot it the best. Well, I, uh, I started my, when I started hunting, I, my first rifle was a 308. Mm-hmm. And after, I don't know, I, you know, you go get away from home, that kind of stuff. I bought a 338. I always wanted one, you know, so I got this 338 Wayne Megan. And I hunted a lot with it, killed a lot of things with with it and that. And, and uh, I went through all the Magnums, you know, the the 338, the 300, the 7, the, you know, all, all, all that, that, that stuff. And then all of a sudden I found myself going back down down smaller again, back to that 308. Now, you've you've built me a custom 308. Uh, I have a, a bunch of 6.5s, you know. Yeah. Uh, those are my favorite rifles, and it's just because you can sit there and shoot it. Yep. And it's half the amount of powder. It's the same bullet. Yep. You know, so they're economical to shoot as well. You know, especially a factory ammo situation. I mean, as you get into the bigger magnums, say an average is 80 bucks a box. If you buy Creedmoor, it's 40. Yeah. It's just, I mean, it's powder, lead, and brass. And the smaller it is, the cheaper it is most of the time. And and here's here's the thing is that when people are chasing velocity all the time because they want it to be flat shooting. Well, today's optics takes care of the rainbow. Okay. Absolutely. Today's optics will take care of the rainbow. We... We're, we're shooting that 6.5 Creedmoor out to, to 1,500 yards, and it was leaving the barrel at 2,700 foot a second. Okay? That, that is not, not no speedball. But the other thing is that those, those sleek, sexy bullets, you know, uh, they take care of this. They take care of the wind for you. So the, the, the higher the ballistic coefficient, the less you have to, to be able to read the wind. Yeah. So you've got the optics that take care of this. And you, you, you're, you're shooting a high ballistic coefficient bullet to help you with the wind. I mean, you people are capable of shooting stuff they never believed of before. Yeah. And, and you don't have to have that great big giant magnum. And when, repeatable. And, and repeatable. I can remember when we started in chasing the long-range game when, and you started building guns and that for me. One of the big big guns that you were building back then, or the big cartridges, was the 3378? 3378 Weatherby? Weatherby, yeah. Oh, yeah. And but, just a monster. Why? Well, over 100 grains of powder. Kick the snot out of you. Eight barrels. <laughs> yeah. So your accuracy part. wasn't there very long, right? No. And then the other thing, you know, a guy really kind of warms up to your gun. You spend some time at the bench with it, and you're, you're going to shoot 200, 300 rounds. I guarantee you in the first several months you own a gun. Yep. Well, with some of these big guns, you're halfway through your barrel. Yeah, is that, isn't that the truth? And... I mean, last time I checked, when I put a barrel on, by the time the dust settles, it's not a cheap thing. Nope. So I'd like to have some, you know, it's like having 700 horsepower on a set of pizza cutters. <laughs> you're going to burn them up quick, right? And and then you're back at the shop. You know, you just get to loving the gun, and it's time to change it again, right? Absolute worst cartridge for eating a barrel? Oh. Like the 257 STW. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> 25 STW is just a monster. Yeah? And what, yeah. What, 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 what kind of barrel life are you talking about? Well, it's, it's a funny one because what will happen with them is you'll develop a load, say like literally a couple hundred rounds in, and then all of a sudden your proven load that's shooting really good starts showing signs of pressure all of a sudden. And it starts acting really weird. You get sticky bolt lifts. And... So you back the load off and everything kind of goes away. 
what's happening is, yeah, you've eroded your throat aggressively and it's, it's coarse and the bullet starts and then grabs that scale and then kind of stops and gets you a, a fluctuation in pressure. Oh. And then all of a sudden you've dropped your load back. So now you're dropped two grains. Yeah. And your velocity stays. And then all of a sudden you'll start shooting. And then the next time it acts up, it's pretty much complete cartridge meltdown. So wow. it's, it's a funny one. It's too overbore for what it, the, the bullet. And it just gets that stop-go type. And I've seen some disastrous results from that cartridge. I remember one time we machined we, we machined open one of those barrels off the 257. Oh, like a Weatherby or it, one of those type ones was, or it, an SDW? I, th- I, th- I think it was the SDW. Yeah, because I always have lots of them laying around. Yeah. <laughs> and it was literally missing about that much. There must have been 10, 12 inches of uh, rifling. It didn't exist. Yeah. You know, passed right, right from the chamber out. It was like, holy crap. Yeah, you got some of the older Winchesters or the older Remington uh, in the early stainless era. Yeah. Where they were still colored black, but they were actually stainless barrels. Uh-huh. Those were super soft. And in the 264 wind mag, yeah, they would be smooth bores <laughs> by the time, you know, and yeah, you cut them down so you can actually see in there and show people that. And they're like, wow. Yeah. And inches of no defined rifling. Yeah. Yeah. I was just shocked. I was just shocked like how you could actually shoot that. And, and I mean, that thing is, it's like a, a gutter ball in the, in, in bowling. Yeah, it's there. rattling its way down that down that barrel until it engages that that uh, what's left of the rifling. Yeah, you have to shoot a cast bullet so it <laughs> swells up. <laughs> okay, so when we talk about accuracy, then mm-hmm. what is you know I've got a gun and it's been a good shooting gun. All of a sudden, accuracy goes away. What's the number one thing you're going to look for? Usually, my first question is what we were doing when the accuracy went bad. If they were deer hunting or elk hunting and things like that, if they were actively hunting at the time, my first instinct is to look for a bulged barrel, hands down. Okay, and how would that happen? Not putting a protective cover over the muzzle of your firearm. Okay, that's a good point because we all have the habit of the the rifle and the sling over the shoulder, and you're saying that you should have a finger caught or or a piece of tape. A piece of electrical tape over the end of your barrel. Yeah. I mean, I've more firearms in a year probably are um, damaged from that phenomenon than anything else combined. So something falling down in the barrel? Falling down or just dipping her in the snow, coming out of a hot truck, dipping it in the snow, or just stumbling and putting your barrel in the muck and not really realizing. Um, Walking through the spruce, whatever it takes. It doesn't take a lot. And um, then they finish hunting or whatever, or say they shoot their game and it was a wild card shot and you know they they recover the animal but they're like i didn't hit where i was aiming and then i went and checked my gun and it's all over the place um you know i pulled the bolt out of that gun right at the front counter put it up to the light look down the barrel and often about an inch and a quarter down from the muzzle there will be a black ring and they're they just stand out like you wouldn't believe it just looks like a black ring in a shiny hallway and that's what it is lot of winter time lot of deer season snow and ice is the most common one snow gets in there warms up in the truck and then you take it back out now you got an ice jam and it doesn't take a lot to bulge a barrel very little and people wouldn't believe that i know like a lot of people 
all my rifles, I always have a, a piece of electro tape over the end yep. of that. And a lot of people are saying, well, you can't shoot that with, all, with that on because you, you're going to, you know, cause that a, a barrel bulge. Nope. No, not at all, because it's actually the air going out in front of the bullet that re that removes that tape. That tape is long gone before that bullet ever clears it. Yeah, it's vapor. Yeah, but that's not the same when you've got ice or a twig jammed in there or whatever. That's a different story altogether. Yeah, right? cobweb from the year before and your first <laughs> round cleans it out. Yeah. Yep, it's going to be torched. <laughs> and sometimes they're really obvious. You can actually see them from the outside um, if you actually look at it. Holy, you know, and you point it out to the customer and then you... Usually I'll pull a boar snaker through just to shine it up so it's really, yeah, you know, amplified. And then you show it to them and they're like, wow, you know. And then you, you ask them, recap what you're doing at the time. And a lot of times it's like, oh, I jumped out of my truck to shoot this wolf and I fell and then I got up and I shot at the wolf and I missed. Yeah. And that's when it all went to bad. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, the other things you always look for, um, you know, there's a lot of package guns out there on the market as well. You know, I get all sorts of... You know, just basic package guns that go out, they have subpar mounts on them, right? Um, I always am pretty critical on scope mounts. Right. There are winners and losers. Okay. Um, you add good recoil into the equation with cheap mounts and, a, and a, you know, an average scope. Yeah, a lot can go wrong there. Um, that's another major one to look at. So, the guy's got a gun, and it's never really shot really good for him. He wants to... to Bring up the accuracy. Say it's you know a nice seven hundred clone or or a, a Tika or or whatever. Yeah. Uh, not to pick on any any brand, any, but yeah. what what's what's the first thing that you look at at doing? The, what are the first three things that you look to, to to tweak it for accuracy? Pretty much, if you're going to open up a box on a gun, open the lid, hand it to me, get the trigger and the bedding done, get it free floated, and get that trigger set up. Um, they're getting better with triggers these days, but there's still lots of room for improvement. Um, most guns are coming with a five-pound trigger, four-pound trigger. Uh, you know, like a Tika, for instance, is a good example. I mean, it's a, on average a six-pound, two-ounce gun to six-pound, eight-ounce gun, depending on caliber and barrel length. Right. They come with, on an average, about a four-pound trigger. So just think, you got a six-and-a-bit-pound gun with a four-pound trigger. Yeah. Pretty easy to move that thing around. It's not 25 pounds, right? So get the trigger weight down to a, a functional weight. You don't have to have a one-pound trigger for hunting. It's not the right nope. type of thing. Too light, can't feel it when it's cold, adverse conditions, especially in the north. Get a trigger between two and three pounds. M normally, I'd say two and a half to three pounds is probably the best all-around weight for that I would set a trigger to. And get it crisp and clean so that it does break smoothly. So you're not yanking or pulling or pre-anticipating the gun going off and there's a bunch of creep. And then the shot's gone, right? right. You'll never get it back. Um, and then bedding. Depending on the manufacturer, um, bedding of the stock, making sure it's repeatable to put in and out. So when you service your gun and you put it back on, it's not going to change point of impact by a mile, right? So here's, this is one thing that people don't understand. Maybe you can explain. Free-floated barrel and then bedding the action. A lot of people still under the impression that you, you, you'd bed the whole length of the barrel. That's not true, right? The barrel should not touch the, should not touch the yeah. stock. Now, you want to bed the action, and what part of the action is, do you bed? Call it your four main points of contact. Um, your recoil lug, mainly where your front guard screw goes through and your rear guard screw goes through. Um, you've got 
bedding on the tang and on the bottom metal. And okay. then again, on the recoil lug area and the front as well. So you kind of have basically your four points of contact. Uh, depending on the material in the stock, uh, wood stock can be easily glass bedded the full action and the full bottom metal. Some of the plastic stocks, um, epoxies don't like injection molded synthetics all that well. So you, you, you kind of just focus on the key point, which is the recoil lug relationship, so that when you take the gun out and put it back in, it's a perfect blueprint. So it always repeats, and when you torque your action screws, it's always the same stresses. Um, it just deals with a, a lot of the harmonics as well. The free-floated barrel thing just eliminates a lot of issues. Contact on your barrel. Well, just take your gun and set your barrel on your vise and shoot it. You will not hit anywhere near where you normally are and then move it up onto the proper part. Rest, yep. And the gun the shoots beautiful. Yeah. So free floating is just, it eliminates so many variables right off the bat. You know, no contact. So as your barrel warms and grows or moves away from, you know, point of least resistance to et cetera, et cetera, they move a lot. And if you get away with from that, you're pretty much got the tiger by the tail, right? You, that's the, that's the trick. A lot of companies are catching on to this, you know, where, but Remington and a lot of, they still have 10 pounds of forehand pressure on there. And that's the first thing I rip out. I mean, it's, I think it's just easier for them to build stocks at contact than to free float everything after the fact. Right. Yep. So what's the difference then with pillar bedding? Pillar bedding, um, when you're dealing with especially wood stocks, right. Um, environmental changes okay wood grows and shrinks it is alive for life okay. i mean it starts alive it's still alive um pillar bedding will allow you to maintain a torque rating on your screws without collapsing the stock over time as well so you've installed a pillar in there that the screws go through so actually Correct. think it's, of a it's a tube it's a, a metal tube metal tube that will contacts your bottom metal and your receiver so as they come together, the pillar is the contact point. So no longer can't, you cannot crush that aluminum pillar or that steel pillar. Right. Now you can run uh, torque pressures higher than what you could before. You know, right. uh, with wood stocks, you don't like to run any more than about 40, 45 foot pound or inch pounds on them, or they start shrinking. And then all of a sudden your guard screws start sticking through. Your bottom metal starts torquing. Your magazine may not start opening properly. And that's just a time thing. And then everybody is always so worried about, um, you know, keeping everything torqued up. That most people over torque heck out of everything, don't they? Especially yeah. like scopes. Oh, so yeah, <laughs> when they turn into eggs, yeah. you're too well, tight. Well, yeah, you, you've got to when you when you mount, uh, we screw down your mounts. You're you're what at thirty thirty five. Uh, base screws. Yeah, you can you can put a lot more to those. Uh, blue Loctite them down, run them between 25 to 30 inch pounds. And okay. not really, but I strangle them. I mean, I run them up But high. you use the blue Loctite? Absolutely. Yep. Then everything's good. Base screws, you can put a little more to it. Now, if you do the same torque on your rings, um, rings now there's different scope manufacturers have different like tolerances in their tubes, right? You know, a lightweight scope, uh, let's just say Swarovski, for instance, just to pick one out of the map. You know, very expensive scope, all that kind of stuff. They have a very light tube. 
their scope weighs 16 ounces instead of 22. That's why. Right. right? The glass weighs the same as the next scope, but the tube is thinner. Right. So they have a recommended torque spec. Stick with it because if you go five pounds more, you'll start showing ring marks into that scope. And they don't disappear. No, no. Take it off. Can't buff it out. (laughs) No. And that's a very common thing. Um, You know, Vortex has a, as their lineup goes, they have a prorated torque spec for each one of those scopes. Yeah. You know, down to 17 inch pounds on a lot of those, uh, you know, mid-grade scopes. Really? Their, Their tubes are soft, right? So it's not that they're soft, that's they're thin. Right. Now you get a night force, for instance. I mean, you can probably put 40 inch pounds on that scope because it's a heavy walled scope. I mean, you yeah, can, <laughs> yeah. There's nothing light about them, is there? No. <laughs> and that's kind of so. Just pay attention when you're mounting scopes. If you're used to mounting just one type of scope, when you switch lanes, read up on it or ask someone because you know that's the difference between having a pretty ugly scope when you take it off. Whether your rings are lapped properly or not, you are gonna collapse the tube a bit. Yeah. Right. You know, you can. So what? What's your most common job at uh in the gun shop hmm that's pretty heavy um so general smithing wise yeah glass bedding um and then yeah just general tune-ups triggers glass bedding and then for more of the custom work muzzle brakes are a huge thing right guys are realizing that you can still have a bigger gun if you tame it down. It really turns over a new leaf, and you can shoot it better. You can see your bullets in flight. So um, that's a huge one as well. That's probably the most common machining right. job you do is muzzle brakes. I mean, I'm, lots and lots and lots. I have muzzle brakes even on two, on 223. Yeah. <laughs> Just, Just because I, I enjoy it. No jump. No, absolutely none. Hearing Abs- protection should be worn regardless. Always. Whether you're shooting your gun, I mean, sure, we're all deaf, and we can absolutely we deaf. can bear a bit more <laughs> loudness, but we're not doing ourselves any good. So muzzle brake will always, because if you shoot one without it, you'll remember it forever. Forever. And you will always just wear those necklaces, pop them in. Yeah. With antler restrictions and everything else that occurs in my hunting style, I have hours of time to pull off a shot realistically. And I mean, you can remove that muzzle brake if you want and put the cap, put cap on, on and go and go hunting. Yep. You're just shooting it once. But if you're going to shoot that gun a lot and get familiar with it, you know, a properly installed muzzle brake does not change the point of impact. It does, doesn't change anything other than how it's recoiling. Yeah. Gen- generally, you'll be more accurate. Yeah. yeah. Tracks nicer. Um, yeah, you might see a, a small shift in impact, and that's witchery. Whether they do it or not, there's no... there's no equation you know i've built weighted caps exactly to the same specs as the muzzle brakes i've done every conceivable thing and you can never completely tune out that point of impact shift from some barrels on on some barrels it's it's just like uh fluting a barrel yep sometimes 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 it makes it shoot that much better and other times it it doesn't and sometimes it it ruins it yeah no i haven't seen very Almost no runings. I've seen nope. accuracy that never changes. Yep. And then I've seen barrels that it's just, wow. Yeah. You know, you take a barrel, like, usually it's the long, skinny barrels that really show the benefit of the fluting. Right. The heavier they are, I mean, it becomes a weight to cooling, to this, you know, just aesthetics game. 
but some of the longer, skinnier barrels, I pretty much flew to all of those. Yeah. It seems like it just puts them into a, a, a sleepier state. They're not as whippy. And generally, I, I believe, and I've seen the accuracy potential from it and, and the results of taking barrels that are mediocre shooters, right. proven ammo, just flute them, and seeing that accuracy drop, whether it be a quarter minute or three-eighths of a minute and sometimes a full minute, you know, you can really get uh, some outstanding changes. Yeah, and it's w w very, uh, very very, aesthetically pleasing as well. Yeah, it looks cool. What's your favorite thing to do with a gun? Well, favorite thing to do with a gun. I'd say let's put that into my favorite gun to build. I I probably love building ultralight rifles and, you know, re reinventing components and, and just striving for that ultimate ultralight rifle. Those really kind of tickle my fancy. You know, if I had to pick a job that, you know, it's like, all right. I get I get some of the guys that are like, just here it is. Build me whatever you want, but I want it light. Okay. And you're in charge. Okay. Those are pretty awesome projects. Um, I like the machining part of things. I mean, whether it's fluting a bolt or putting a muzzle brake on or chambering a barrel, the metal work is always intriguing. Right. And then, uh, I don't know, I've I've refinished upwards of 6,000, like, Teflon, powder coat, Cerakote jobs. I mean, I've, I've lost count. Um, but some of the finish work and the paint jobs and things like that at the end, that's what really pulls the whole project together. Well, I I never I never tell you <laughs> I never tell you how to paint any of my rifles. I I might say, well, brownish, okay, and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then and, uh, and you never disappoint. I mean, I I have some some of the most spectacular custom paint jobs on uh, on my rifles. I really like the McMillan stock, so yes. I mean, my I I have a big believer in synthetics, and I just like how rigid they are. I like how they fit. That uh, HTG is, yep. is is my favorite stock of, of Macmillan. I like how they fit. I like that if I'm wanting to put a bipod on them, I don't have to worry. I can preload that that bipod, and uh, when I'm shooting in that, I don't have to worry about that stock moving or warping or anything else. Oh yeah, it's not like the you know a lot of the Tupperware that's out there today. So um, I've always thought that your you know your stock work was spectacular, and your inletting in that. I mean, it's it's always been first class, but. And when you're dealing with good components and and when you can have the the advantage of painting, a lot of people think, oh, these these stocks are inleted super good, they're just a drop in. But the best part about having to paint them at the end is when you glass them and do the finish work, those edges are just clean cut, sanded flush. You don't have to work around a pre existing paint job. You can do perfect body work. Your bottom metal is basically formed into it. You sand right onto the bottom metal, right? You you get all your edges clean, tight, so that when you pull it out, I mean, it it really is a casting, a perfect casting. Well, so if you're going to build a rifle today, yep. What's what what are the components that you would choose? Well, for me, um, I still like a, a turn bolt gun. Like I'm a bolt action guy for sure. I well, mean, obviously, I, yeah. I mean, yeah. you like you like shooting the distance, that the, kind of stuff. And the accuracy potential and everything else. Um, extractor type. My preference is like a mini sixteen style. I like a push feed action. Um, 
controlled round feet is great. It's more of a dangerous game one, but I like to be able to single shot easy, no interruptions. Um, kind of the top makers I like, I, I like a two lug bolt, spiral fluted, so it's nice and slick, nitrided bolt. Um, I always lay more onto the lighter style action, so a little bit slabbed, you know, lightweight aluminum shroud handle combination, and I like an interchangeable handle or knob. Right. You can run a longer knob for on the bench, nice tidy knob for in your scabbard or on your horse so it's tight. The versatility is there, right? Right. Um, so the hard operation, I like kind of like a 700 clone, but integral lug if I can. Um, I like to run tally type mounts, the lightweight mounts, so 8 by 40 screw holes. I like two-piece mounts so I have more access into my loading area just for a visual, you know, is my gun up? Yep. Just tip it, look in there. Um, yeah, mini 16 style extractors, like that type of extractor. They're just bomb proof, right? Right. Proven tough. And then it just basically goes, I, I'm more of a short action, you know, those type of calibers. I like the efficiency and, and just having a shorter weapon overall. I like to run, you know, a shorter barrel or as short as possible to burn the powder that's needed. Yeah. You know, like I say, I'm all mountain motivated, right? So. You know, the 28-inch Sendero contour-type barrels, I mean, that's just not my game. So if you were to, to what, what what make would the action be? It would be a split. Like, I, like Defiance is probably one of my favorite because you can really choose a pile of options. Yeah. And you don't pay extra for that. Right. Which is great, you know, so you can take their action, get the extra deep spiral flute, the aluminum handle, the slabbed action, and it's the same as if you just got the round round receiver with the non-fluted bolt. You know, you get to pick and choose and really customize it to the build. I believe that's that's what I have. That's exact action I have in my yep. 260 AI, right? Your 260 AI is that way. My my most commonly used gun I have is on a Defiance short action. Yeah. Rebel action that's been, you know, modified to my liking. Okay, so bottom metal end? Bottom metal, I still rock hinge floor plates. Um, I'm not a huge detachable mag fan. No. Um, unless I'm varmint hunting, where I know I'm going to be traveling. Yeah. So it's easy to take it out and move along. Um, in the mountains, I load my magazine. I never hunt with a loaded firearm. I can stay there all week. I'm never anywhere near anything motorized, so I don't have to worry about unloading and reloading. Exactly. And I can't lose it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. So just a... Like a Pacific tool and gauge or a Macmillan bottom metal, open door style with the inbow trigger release or mag release. You know, they're just nice and tidy and easy to get at. There's there's nothing like being in big bear country with a single shot. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. that that That's the bottom metal. Yeah. Uh, barrel? Barrels, I could, I could throw them all in a bucket <laughs> because of the thousands of barrels that have rolled through the shop and things like that. You're... You, Really, your top performers, they're out there. Your benchmarks, your Kriegers, your Liljas, Hearts, those barrels there are fantastic. And you're never making a bad choice. Go with your gut or go with what you've had experience with, um, and the results will be there. I mean, your biggest is uh, cut rifled or buttoned. Okay. And that's your only you know, real argument. These guys are making fantastic pipes. And Canadian content now, too, like KS Arms in Edmonton, beautiful cut rifled barrels, fantastic. Yeah. Put them against anything. 
Yeah. Cool. So stock? Stocks, I'm with you. I like an Edge Tech from Macmillan, carbon outer, edge fill middle. Um, I generally take a little bit slimmer design. You like the HDGs, which yeah. are a little fatter through yep. there. I like a little narrower in the wrist. I do like the HDGs with the forend when you're running, say, bipods and things like that. It's a lot nicer. Just a little bit more heft. I but it only adds like 1.5 ounces to go to that bigger forend, if you can believe that. That's yeah. It. So yeah. it's worth it. Anything else then on on, on that gun? Uh, uh, yeah. And then the trigger? The full deck, yeah. Triggers, uh, really, really backing the trigger tech triggers. Um, oh, I don't, I don't believe I have one of those. Oh, well, you should. <laughs> um, it's really nice for the end user. They're yeah. actually detent adjustable externally, so you don't actually have to pop the stock off to adjust it. Jewels are the same way. You can access your weight adjustment uh, outside of the gun without having to take the stock off. Um, I mean, Timney, the safety design is fantastic. Adjustability is great, but you do have to pop it off to just, say, go from cold weather setting to a bench setting, right? You right. pop your stock off. So some guys are apprehensive about taking their guns apart. I don't know why, but um, they're just worried about wrecking something. I well, guess. I think it's because a lot of people don't understand everything that goes into the technology of a gun, and, and it's kind of that mojo thing. You don't want to screw with what's working. Yeah, like it's working so good I'm not touching it. Yeah, yeah. I get a lot of that, actually. And you can tell because it's usually by the time they come in for a service, there's four years of pine needles buried in there. <laughs> um, but, yeah, the trigger techs are really nice. Uh, they are frictionless, zero creep-type triggers. So if you ever, ever shot a jewel yeah. uh, type where when they break, it's just snap. There's absolutely nothing else happens after the fact. So okay. it, they're really nice. Um, positive design. And then a Canadian company as well. And they're coming. They, they really made a good splash. It's been a couple years of using them, and, and I'm very happy. That's awesome. Yeah. So you shoot thousands upon thousands of rounds a year. You guys have a a, uh, a stock mounting and, and rifle uh, accuracy truing and or, or guaranteeing the accuracy of the rifle and that uh, you handle all these cartridges what's your what cartridges with you when you go to the mountains I've got pretty much my 7-8 Ackley improved has been the workhorse yeah I mean it's it's tough I, I'm right now I'm torn I've got a I ordered up a magnum bolt for my defiance action I have a 6.5 barrel sitting around my bench but like the typical mechanic, I'm the last on the yeah. list by far. Yeah. And I'm going to build a 6.5 PRC as my big gun. Ooh, I like, I'm interested in those. Yes. I'm and interested. It, because my gun, it will be a 100% switch barrel component gun. Oh, okay. So all I do is pull my bolt. Uh, my magazine box is going to be converted to what's called a Wyatt center feed mag box. So it's a three-inch mag box, same as my 7-0-8 Ackley. All I do is pull my bolt out. My barrels are all indexed, integral. So I just pop my barrel on and I'm and change my bolt, and I have my 6.5 uh, PRC. I've got, I've got five, four, pardon me, four, four six fives. So I guess I got room for one more. That's right. You got five fingers. Right? Yeah. So what it does is gives me all the benefits of the 6.5 by 284, for instance. Yep. I'm getting lazy. I like factory ammo now. I tell you what. So 
It's amazing. That Hornady ELDX in that ammo, and I built lots of them now. I mean, I I just hand the guy the gun and be like, oh, yeah, there's another half-inch gun. You know, it's it, it, fantastic. That, that Precision Hunter that Hornady has, uh, oh. I, you know, if, if they'd had it years ago, I'd, I'd never be a reloader. Like, I mean, I can't improve on it. No. I, that's saying a lot because I'm about as, as anal about the details as it gets, but I just can't improve on it. I mean, it's fabulous ammunition. I think a lot of it's that bullet. The bullet? That ELD bullet. And the thing about it, too, is when they develop these cartridges now, they develop the chamber. And if you notice, when you grab all the different ammos, it's a whole bunch of different lengths. They're yeah. seeding that ammunition 10, 15 thou off the land factory. It's right on the money. It's they're doing exactly what the best hand loaders would be doing to basically achieve optimal location and performance. The other thing that's really cool too, though, is that a lot of these cartridges today are are designed because people are shooting longer, right? And yeah. you just about have to invent a new cartridge to do that because if if you, if somebody were to bring out a big long uh, twenty five cal bullet, well. Obviously, the 25 out 6 has enough powder to, to push a big long bullet, but there isn't a single factory rifle that is twisted to shoot a long bullet, you know? Yep. So when I was, I was talking with a fellow from Hornady uh, when we were shooting at the FTW, and he said it's just about, like, you know, you have to just about bring out a cartridge so that whenever that is, uh, the, the rifle comes out at the same time for, and that is designed for those big, long bullets. And I mean, that's, I've done that with, with my custom rifles. Like yep. I, mean, I shoot those big, long bullets in, the, in, the, in them. I'm probably one of the few people that has a 22 to 50 that shoots an 80 grain bullet, <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. But I had it throated that way. I had it designed for that. And, and it's got the twist that I need, but you just still got those factory rifles that are twisted for a lot of these classic cartridges as people are trying to push out those longer, you know, longer ranges with, with those big bullets. They're not made for them. And that's where this 6.5 PRC is going to be so cool. I mean, it's going to do, you know, what so many of uh, of rifles weren't designed for. And I mean, the 6.5-284 was never really uh, much of a, uh, a factory rifle anyway. No, and it's a tough one because it's it's an in-betweener. Yeah. It's really a 3150 combined overall length cartridge. It should be that long. Most actions don't accept it. Yep. And shorts don't take it. Longs are too long. Yep. You know, you're just giving away all that space. You can't utilize it, right? So it's kind of stuck in the middle. Exactly. If you can keep a cartridge under three inches and pretty much shoot 3,000 feet per second, you're the winner. You see, I'm so with you on that 3,000 foot a second. After you go over that, it, to me, it's wasted velocity. I need a bigger bullet. Because yeah. you just once you start getting over that three thousand foot a second, you're starting worrying about barrel life. You, you you're starting to push things so hard. You have to worry about you know did you develop load when it was sixty degrees out and now it's eighty five today and the, those kind of things. I like to stay under. I, if if I'm from anywhere from twenty nine fifty to three thousand, I'm happy as can be. Yeah. I have a uh, a twenty six nozzler. Well, you know that that thing, the cartridge is about that long on it. Oh, and it'd be, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it burns a ton of powder. I shoot it, the, the, the bullets I shoot in it are the uh, 147 uh, ELDs, and uh, I shoot them at 3,000 foot a second. It could probably push them at, at 32 or 3,400 or whatever, but I don't want that. No. Because then I'm just burning barrel and, and powder. and You're paying what? the price yeah. sooner or later. Yeah. yeah. And 
the longevity, like you say, the scope takes care of the up and down. Yep. So you're now you have the bullet. The BC isn't going to change whether you drive it faster or slower by any margin. Nope. So do what the accuracy node point tells you. And if it's at 3,050 feet per second, stop there. Absolutely. Because that's good enough. Yeah. And uh, so the PRC, I'm very excited. Um, it's, 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 it's a winner. Um, we also had a pretty good deal going on. We got some exclusives guns built um, right. through Christensen Arms. I think we're the only company basically to ever to get a, a production gun, limited edition, built through them. Oh, neat. So they, we arranged this or whatever and worked with them. And pretty much, yeah, we have factory guns chambered in 6.5 PRC rolling off the shelf right now. We're the oh, only in cool. people in Canada, period. Absolutely. That's cool. Yeah. So, and the performance is just fantastic. That Hornady ammo, when it says 29.50 on the box, just took out a gun today. I built uh, for a guy named Scott. It's a left-handed, titanium, lightweight, uh, 6.5 PRC, 24-inch barrel, fluted, just a really tidy gun. Gorgeous thing. Hidden trapdoor magwell in the back for additional cartridges like the European ones yeah. uh, from NECG. Just fantastic, like over the top. And uh, one of our guys, Keaton, took it out. Standard deviation of 14 feet per second across the board. Factory ammo. Yeah, factory ammo. 200-yard <laughs> groups, well under, you know, at an inch. Yeah. Know, half MOA. The gun isn't even broken. This is just basically a range, run-up, uh, test site. Just go through the paces, right? Yeah. You know, just prove the gun. This is a, this is not a 50-cent gun. You know, this no. was a very, very thought-out custom that had a pile of stuff in it. We want to hand the guy in confidence. So we wanted to get some velocity and a few different things because uh, he... He had put a Leopold, the new uh, HD, like the VX6s. Yep. Uh, so it does come with a free turret based on velocities and things like that. So, right. Um, so we wanted to get some preliminary velocities just to help him along the line because he's from out of town and he'll be up here working. So we won't have a lot of resources while he's here. He just wanted to get a head start on the game and just prove an ammo. Or, yeah, 143 LDXs out of the box, standard deviation of 14, and shoot basically half MOA just poof and the numbers are there when Hornady puts that number on the side of the box it means something yep it's not some dream when they're shooting downhill on a, on the right day or whatever it it means something like I'm, I'm astounded at, at how well it is and I hope it becomes a standard in the industry because we don't need more of the usual marketing BS when it comes to the BC of the bullet or the velocity or any of that you just need some reality to deal with the lie detectors are out there now. I mean, if your BC isn't up to par, it's it's caught. You know, especially when now we were shooting turret scopes or ballistic scopes and all that. That all counts on the BC of that bullet. And and yep. you know, if if you got starting velocity in the BC and that, you should be able to. On paper, you can figure it all the way out to a thousand yards. You go and shoot it, and all of a sudden it's it's missing by six seven inches. Well, something ain't right. Yeah. You know, yeah, and, and it's sometimes it's the design of the bullets. Like some of the programs, like the G1 or whatever it is, yeah. might not take into account, say, a Barnes bullet with uh, all the cantilers. I mean, those are microscopic turbulence, right? Yeah. So I see it over time that their BCs are lower than advertised when we shoot them to long distances, right? Yeah. So, at you know, when it all comes down to it, 
uh, when you're building turrets and when you're working with things like that, uh, you want to input that data. I mean, it's fine to have a slightly lower BC, but you got to account for it before you start building permanent attachments to your, your firearm. I, and I, I believe that if you're going to shoot distances in that, you, you shoot a cup and core bullet. I mean, you need to have that, that perfect mating with the, with the rifling. You need that bullet to be obturating, which is actually because of the velocity and the pressure and that it actually swells to fill that, that rifling. That doesn't happen with a solid bullet, mm-hmm. whether it's a, a gilding metal bullet or solid copper bullet. That yeah. just doesn't happen. No, and, then, and you're always worried about the performance at the long range. Yeah. And yeah. the opening or the potential failures at that, you know, when, you, when you're pushing the envelope, right? Cup core bullets, they're going to work for you. I know that. Well, I see we have ran an hour and a half here like nothing. And I think we might as well wrap this up. I, your puppy wants to be fed, I'll bet. <laughs> yeah. Tell everybody how they can reach you. Well, you can reach me many different ways. Uh, best way, uh, we have a phone number. It's 250-782-2111. And that gets you to our main, obviously, during business hours, that gets you in there. Yep. Uh, we're online at uh, CoraleSportingGoods.com, and you pretty much, yeah, we have a lot of our gunsmithing services on there now. Our used inventory is updated every week. It's a fantastic site. We're developing it all the time and spending a lot of attention on that, so you can see our ever-changing inventory. Um, we, Aaron's on Facebook and on Instagram. I mean, you can follow us there. Um, it's fantastic. We really. Uh, Posting a lot more things and doing a lot more interactions, so you get to see a lot of the new products out all the time. That's and, exciting, uh, and I, I I love visiting with you. I love talking guns, and I probably need a new six point five PRC now. You probably will. <laughs> Thank you, buddy. <laughs> you betcha. Rich.